2, and we'll be reading verses 10 through 18. And I'm going to ask if you, well, before we, as you're turning there and before we, we stand to read the Scripture, let's pray. Draw us close, Holy Spirit, as the Scriptures are read and the Word is proclaimed. Let the Word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts, and let all the words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace. Amen. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Hebrews chapter 2, reading from verse 10 through 18. It'll be on the screen here as well. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. The one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all, all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to, the brother, to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham, and therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those being tested. This is the written word of God for the people of, we got, of God. We say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> I think we've heard again this week, as we did last week, really the promise of the gospel in one section of scripture. The promise of Christmas here about the incarnation. God's presence is salvation. It's God's very presence that is salvation. Hebrews portrays Jesus. If you read the whole book of Hebrews, part of what it portrays um, Jesus as is the ultimate faithful one, the ultimate obedient one. As we heard in the children's lesson today, even his parents, Mary and Joseph, demonstrate faithfulness and obedience to God, following the way of God. And it, it becomes a model for us as well. And this is how Jesus lives his life. The one of ultimate obedience and faithfulness to the will and way of God. That's what Hebrews tells us about who Jesus is. The way of Jesus, the way that Jesus goes, is the way of God. You've heard me say it several times recently. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus lives in a particular way. And this is the way that God calls Jesus and all humanity to live. That's what Hebrews and so much of our New Testament wants us to know about Jesus, about who Jesus is. He lives in obedience and faithfulness to the way and will of God. Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians. It's called Hebrews because it's, um, it's been believed for a long time that it's written to Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians. Um, they were Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, and so it's likely that they were somewhere um, in diaspora, meaning they weren't in, actually in, in the, the, the land of Israel. They were probably out dispersed. Um, in, in Rome somewhere, there were many Jews that were dispersed in the Roman Empire. So they could have very well been in Rome itself, the city of Rome. So they were Greek-speaking Jewish 
Christians, right? And so they, they spoke Greek because the text is written in Greek. And we don't know how many Christians this, this letter was written to. It's actually um, believed by most scholars to not necessarily be a letter, but rather a sermon that was mailed out to several churches to be read out loud to the congregations. Many have believed for a long time that the book of Hebrews is written by Paul. But there's really no reason for us to think that it was written by Paul. It doesn't begin any of the way that Paul's letters does. All of Paul's letter begin by saying, I, Paul, a apostle of Jesus Christ, to so-and-so. It doesn't begin that way. It begins more like a sermon would. It begins proclaiming the gospel and doesn't actually say who it's from or who it's to. Um, but it's long been believed that it was written to, to specifically Jewish Christians because of the language that is used throughout. Um, but again, it's written to Jewish Christians who are in, not in Israel, in the safety and security of what they're familiar with, near the temple and near Jerusalem, but out in the world of Rome, the Roman world somewhere. Now, a significant part of the persecuting of Christians that we begin to hear about in, in the New Testament, per- persecution begins to increase as the, faith of, of, as the faith in Jesus spreads. Persecution begins to increase. And we often think of persecution, when we hear that word, we're probably thinking oftentimes of, of violence, violent persecution to the Christians in the early church. The Roman Empire was particularly violent towards Christians later um, in years. But even more so than that, more widespread than that, was often just social pressure. The social pressure to not be a Christian was very strong in the Roman Empire. Jewish people had been around for long enough that, that yet there was still some Jewish persecution, and, and that definitely happened in the, in the, new, in the first century. But in reality, they, they, they had kind of grown accustomed. They knew how to interact with Romans, with, 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 with Greek people, in such a way that they could live peaceably alongside them, and they could get away and get around the, the, too, too much social pressure that the, the, the Romans had kind of gotten used to them. They were just this, this group of people that were in the Roman Empire. But as Christianity begins to spread, a significant part of the Christian faith is that we're supposed to share our faith. We're supposed to live in such a way that other people know this Christ. And we're supposed to proclaim Christ crucified, right? And you hear, hear Paul um, uh, uh, arguing for this in all of his letters. It's a significant part to tell, to go tell it on the mountain, right? To tell others about Christ, evangelism. And with that as opposed to with the Jewish faith, with that comes a lot of persecution, a lot of social pressure. You're proclaiming a God who was killed, who came to earth and was killed. And for the Romans, this just goes against all their sensibilities. The gods are way above us. The gods are, are far removed from human suffering, far, far, not even concerned really with what's going on with humanity. We've got to sacrifice a certain amount of animals. We've got to worship a certain way. We've got to live a certain way in order to get the God's attention to even pay, pay attention to us, to give us rain for our crops. That's the way that the Romans understood um, the gods. And so here's a group of people proclaiming that God, the supreme God, decided to become a human. That's just foolishness, really, to Romans, to Greek thinkers. Gods, they, they are the exact opposite of humanity. They're the exact opposite of humans. And so the idea that, that you're worshiping a God who not only became a human, but then suffered and died the most shameful death that you could possibly experience, crucifixion being stretched out, almost naked, perhaps even completely naked, for all the world to see your de- death, it was a curse. It was, a, it was shameful. And we're proclaiming, Christians are proclaiming that that is God. That is the way of God. That is the will of God. And that is just foolishness. Shameful. 
So a lot of the persecution that happened in the church was to just shame you for believing that. There's, we, there's pictures of, uh, of paintings that Romans made, um, drawings and all, and it was almost like a comic. This group of, of Christians who worshipped a God who was crucified. And, it, and they picked on them. They made fun of them. They pressured them to, to stop believing such foolishness. Many believers who left the faith did so simply because they couldn't handle the social pressure. They left the faith because they were tired of being ostracized. They were tired of this shameful thing. And so we hear things like Paul in in the first chapter of Romans. He's writing to the Roman church, right? People who are experiencing this shame and this this, um, ostracizing by the Roman people. And what does he say in Romans 1, 16? It's a very popular verse, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. I am not ashamed of this gospel that says that God came to earth and was crucified and was raised to new life. I'm not ashamed of that. Despite the, the social and the cultural pressures, I am not ashamed that my God was crucified. So that's a really important part of what Paul and so many of the writers in the New Testament are, are writing for, is to, to encourage them, do not be ashamed of this gospel. For this is God and this is the way of God. So many believers couldn't handle it. They left the faith because they couldn't handle the shame. And so this author of Hebrews writes this sermon really to an unknown number of churches of Jewish believers in order to remind them who Jesus was. Jesus was God. Jesus was God. He wants them to know that. It's greater than any way that God has been revealed ever before. That's what the writer of the Hebrews wants us to know. Jesus was God and he, what in, in his suffering... Is a revelation of God. This unknown author of Hebrews writes and says, Jesus is not ashamed of us. That's what he says. He reminds them that Jesus is truly God's son, and the Old Testament bears witness to this. He might not be on earth anymore in the way he was before, but because of his coming to earth, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his suffering, and the way that we suffered, and his then ascension, he is able to serve as the perfect high priest The good high priest, that's what he declares in this text. Because he's been glorified after being shamed and embracing the shame of humanity and even death on a cross. Our text says that it is not Jesus' ascension, his going up to heaven, really, that that makes him a perfect uh, high priest. But rather it's his willingness to descend, to come to earth, his willingness to be humbled. That is what makes him the perfect high priest, not being lifted up and glorified. That's an important part of it. But it's really because he went through suffering and went through shame that makes him a good high priest for us. His presence among us as humans, his suffering among us as humans, at the hands of humans and as a human, that is what makes him a perfect high priest. Verse 10 says it this way, and it's right at the beginning of our text that we read. It was fitting. It was fitting that Jesus would become perfect, become that perfect high priest by suffering. That he would become that perfect high priest for us by suffering. Now again, the idea of God choosing the way of human suffering was laughable to the Romans. Laughable to Roman sensibilities. To be divine is to be everything that humanity is not for the Romans. It's not, it's to be not weak like humanity is. It's to not be vulnerable like humanity is. It's to not be mortal or capable of suffering. That's exactly why you are God. 
to not experiencing, experience those things. So the idea that God would choose that is laughable to them. This is exactly why Hebrews is written. If you read the whole book of Hebrews, it becomes clear because this message is leading many to abandon the faith as, as the social pressure increases. Verse 11 then declares that Jesus, the Savior and sanctifier, shares a father with those that he sanctifies and saves by becoming one of us. That's how. By becoming just like us, by choosing to be our brother and sister, by choosing to be present with us. That is how he brings salvation, by choosing presence. Presence is what leads to salvation. The author of Hebrews reverses the logic. The logic is that for the Romans, the Roman logic is, is it makes no sense for God who is divine, who is separate from suffering, who is separate from deaths, who is separate from mortality. It it makes no sense for that being to become a human and experience those very things. And so it's shameful to believe that. But the author of the Hebrews reverses that, saying, no, what's shameful is not is being ashamed of that. Because think about it. Christ comes and embraces the shamefulness. It's so wild for the Romans to say that you should be ashamed for believing in a God like that. When what we're believing is, is a God would embrace our shame as humans, would embrace our mortality as humans. And so he reverses this logic. Roman culture says that we should be ashamed to worship a God who was humbled in human nature and suffering. But in reality, it is God who has embraced the shame of humanity by becoming one of us and willingly giving giving himself up to a shameful death. And so he says, Jesus wasn't ashamed to be a brother and sister. So how dare us be ashamed to call him brother and brother, Right? He wasn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Why would we be ashamed to call him our brother? According to the author, salvation can only be known if God does this exact thing. We must become brothers and sisters of a suffering Messiah if we are to experience salvation from the very things that Jesus was unashamed to experience, death and the fear of death. Jesus was afraid to die. He experienced the fear of death that we experience. That's what this prayer is right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It demonstrates his fear of death. He embraces that, that shame of being scared of death. He embraces that. And it's because he chooses to embrace that he is able to bring salvation. It is his suffering, it is his presence that brings salvation. This isn't all that different from the Old Testament message. And the author of Hebrews even even clearly believes that, that there was this this great faith from Abraham that rose up, and it was great, but Jesus is even greater than that. That's what the author of Hebrews is wanting us to know. And, And we see that even in the Old Testament lesson that we read today in Isaiah 63. Man, it's so beautifully spoken. Isaiah 63, eight through nine, hear these words again. Pastor Mary Elizabeth read them a little while ago. God says, surely... They are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became, God became their savior in all their distress. It was no messenger or angel that he sent, not someone lower, an angel or a messenger that he sent to bring them salvation. No, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence. That's not the New Testament talking about Jesus. 
That's the Old Testament. That's Isaiah declaring that about God. It is God's very presence, even in the Old Testament, that brings salvation to God's people. That is powerful. God doesn't send someone else. God embraces the shame of being present with us. That is how salvation is experienced. Now, Isaiah is referring to the old stories, the the stories of the old days when when the people were in Egypt in a shameful state of, of slavery. It is God's presence coming to them and bringing them out of slavery and bringing them through the wilderness. God is present with them all along the way, even in their shame, even in the desert. God is there. Isaiah writes this to people who are in Babylonian exile years and years, years later after they were in exile in Egypt and and taken into Egypt as slaves. They're brought into a new, uh, bigger empire, Babylon. And Isaiah writes to them and says, God was with us before. God was with us, present with us before. Not an angel, not a messenger of God, but God's self, God's very presence rescued us before. He's going to do it again. That's what Isaiah wants the people to know. And we see in fulfillment and even greater sense, Jesus comes to us to rescue us by being present with us. It is Christ's presence that brings salvation. Remember, Exodus, God's presence is there. Remember, in Babylon, God's presence is there. And remember, on Christmas... That God's presence comes even fuller, even greater. Not just as his presence, but physically here on earth. And it is his life, his, his presence throughout his life, his coming and, and being with people who are sick, being with people who are unwell, being, pe- being with people who are far from God. He doesn't avoid them, those that are supposedly unclean. He goes to them and it is because of his presence that they are healed. It is because of the presence of Jesus that people experience salvation. That is what salvation is, is Christ's very presence. We sing in this Christmas season, one of my favorite lines this year has been, cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We talked about it last week. Be born in us today. It's it's asking Christ to come and be present. Because Christ's presence is what cast out sin, it's what cast out fear, it's what cast out death from us. Christ's presence within us, being present with us. And because of his ascension, he is able to be present even with us who are on a completely different side of the planet than where he was when he walked among us as humans. God's presence is still what brings salvation. Now we experience it through the Holy Spirit and we experience it together as the body of Christ here in church, in his church, as a church. Jesus does this. He comes and he's present with us. And then even still his spirit, the Holy Spirit is present with us. That is what brings us salvation. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And that's, I guess, the sermon, but... There's a really important aspect of all of this. We can celebrate that. That is the gospel. That Christ comes and it is, it is his very presence that brings salvation. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us, those that have experienced the presence of God and have experienced that salvation? Are we done? Are we just waiting for Jesus to come back now? We're just waiting for heaven? Of course we are. There's so much more than that. 
We now have a call on our life. Think about the first part of this text. It says that Jesus is the pioneer of salvation. The pioneer. What is a pioneer? Pioneer is someone that goes before. It is a call to come after him. And no, it will never be something that we have. We possess our salvation. It is always Christ's salvation in us. But it is our call as, as followers of Christ, as people who have accepted Christ, to now come after him and to live the way that he lived here on earth. To be willing, like he was, to embrace shame, to embrace the broken, to embrace those that are lost, to embrace those that need salvation. Our call then is to receive salvation through Christ's presence and then to be bearers of that salvation in the world. Not just sit around and wait but, and not just experience it for ourselves, but to be bearers of that salvation ourselves as the church, as the body of Christ in the world, as the hands and feet of Christ in the world. We become the bearers of that salvation. It's not our salvation, but it lives in us and we bear it into the world We, like God, can only participate in bringing salvation to those in need by becoming present with them. God finally has to come and be with us. The Word made flesh, the incarnation, the enfleshment of God to really bring full salvation to us, to bring healing and renewal and salvation to us. He has to be with us. And the same is said for us. If we expect to participate in the bringing of this salvation to the world, we must embrace the shame that comes with embracing the broken. Those that our society deem unclean, those that our society deem unworthy, those that need salvation. We must be willing to embrace them, like really embrace them, be with them. We can only participate in the bringing of salvation into the world if we are willing to be okay with the shame that comes with embracing the outsiders. Those that are hurt, those that are in need, those that are suffering. We must be unashamed. Just as Jesus is unashamed to call you and I brothers and sisters, we must be unashamed to call those in need of salvation brothers and sisters. We have to be able and be willing to embrace them. Perhaps we're not the best with words. We have to trust the spirit, the presence of God to speak words through us. Perhaps we're not the most comfortable around others. We have to trust God to be present with us. We have to be unashamed to call those that the world would call, would, would, would ostracize us for embracing. That is what it means to be the church. That is what it means to be the hands and feet of Christ. And of course, we can't go into this with a savior mindset of we are the savior. We bring salvation. But only when we surrender ourselves to Christ, when we humble ourselves the way that Christ did, can we be bearers of this salvation. Any attitude of superiority will undermine any message that we try to bring. But if we are willing to embrace those that need salvation, to call them brothers and sisters, then we become the hands and feet of Christ truly. Just as Christ is unashamed to call us brothers and sisters, we must be unashamed to call those in need brothers and sisters. Pastor Kevin, Ms. Jean, would you come and lead us in one final song? We celebrate this Christmas season, not just the salvation that Jesus brings to us as individuals, as, as, as people, but that, that the Spirit empowers us to do the same, to embrace shamefulness, to embrace the shame 
that the world would, would heap on us, to be okay with it, because we know that we are being bearers of Christ's salvation to them. Would you help us, oh God? We need your strength. We need your help, Lord, to be your presence, to be your hands and feet in the world. To be willing and okay with embracing shame. We need you. We need your spirit in order to be able to do that, as you have so faithfully done in your life. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be present in our lives so that we can be your presence in others' lives. We ask in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one more song. This song we're going to sing is I Wonder As I Wander.